This is Mythmaker, the lost legacy of Donald Cotton. I'm Lucas Testro. My search for people who knew Donald Cotton had hit a wall. Then one day, I got an email from the family history site I'd been using to search Donald's birth records. It was the typical kind of email you get when a website's trying to persuade you to sign back up with them. Today, we found the following 10 new results for your search. It was a list of Donald Cottons. From the photos, most were clearly the wrong Donald Cottons. But right at the top, there was a blurry black and white photo of someone who just could be the same young man I'd seen in photos from the Bolton's Cabaret Club. He had a goatee, unlike any photo I'd seen of Donald. And this person was looking down and away from camera. But the resemblance niggled at me. So $300 and an annual subscription later, I click on the photo. And I'm taken to a new account. Someone else has started researching Donald Cotton. Okay, so I'm Perry Jones, um, formerly Perry Cotton. Um, I'm the son of Donald Cotton. Yes, it was the Christopher Cotton I'd been scouring the world for. But it turns out Perry goes by one of his middle names. And he takes his surname from his adopted father. I have some very early memories of Donald, um, known as Daddy Donald uh, to me. But my mum hooked up uh, with the guy who became a stepfather, um, who later adopted me as his own, um, when I was, crikey, four or five years old. And I, through my life, only really saw or met Donald once or twice. Um, The most recent time I met him, I think I was... 15 or 16 years old. So Donald's a mysterious figure for Perry as well. Understandably, their estranged relationship had left Perry feeling angry at Donald for much of his life. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. I've always regretted not going to the funeral to meet other relatives that I may have had. And it's only recently, really, Lucas, I've started chipping away to rebuild this family history. I tell Perry about Donald's mysterious death certificate, and he agrees to apply for the records of the coroner's inquest. He also introduces me to his mum, Hillary. Hiya. Hillary is automatically cooler than any of us because she was almost a Bond girl. She was up for being one of Pussy Galore's um, glamorous flying co-pilots in um, Goldfinger. They wanted tall people and I was tall for the age. And so, yeah, I got the part and then they said filming starts in six months. And by that time I learned I was pregnant, so that was unfortunate. <laughs> Pregnant glamour pussies just weren't the order of the day in the early 60s. <laughs> that would have been very, very progressive for James Bond. Hugely progressive. It was 1963 when Hillary first met Donald in a bar called the Kismet Club. It was in a creepy basement in Leicester Square and it was run by a lovely plump woman called Maltese Mary. And I was working as an actress and lost work and went to work as the barmaid. The Kismet Club was a regular haunt of London's art society. On an average night, you'd find the likes of Barry Humphreys and Peter O'Toole propped up against the bar. But to say it was disreputable is an understatement. Author Christopher Howes, writing in The Spectator, remembered, It had two nicknames. One was Death in the Afternoon, and the other one was The Iron Lung. It was underground, with no windows, walls weeping with damp and bits of paint coming off them. The lavatory opens straight onto the bar with no intervening doors. Historian Michael Pepiat also recalled drinking there with the artist Francis Bacon. I became addicted to his nightly routine, which usually took a dizzying course from high to low, sometimes very low. 
ending in such alarming venues as the Iron Lung, where a milling crowd of misfits and conmen gathered to get drunk in a basement patrolled by a very large ex-policeman referred to, in kinder moments, as Maltese Mary. Donald Cotton was another of the regulars at the Kismet Club. He'd hold court in the back room where Hillary tended bar. Donald was the man with the epigram. He used to stand there with his elbow raised, up like this with a drink, and everybody would be clustered around him, hanging on his every word. He was very witty. Wasn't particularly intelligent, necessarily, but he just had this facility that was with words and... Somebody once said, it was going on in the pub when I was behind the bar, and he was saying, and this happened and this and I don't think they knew who I was. And he just looked and said, and who were you? And he was one of the most likeable people and delightful people to be, to be around. And I just fell for him. Hillary and Donald soon became an item. They enjoyed time together in the countryside, where Donald shared with her his love of animals. We used to go on long, long walks, and um, he, he was the most entertaining companion then. He was incredibly well-informed about birds, birds' eggs, birds' song. Donald was happiest out in nature, and he loved to think of himself as a country gentleman. He dressed in tweeds and waistcoats and corduroy trousers. But how much was real and how much was a persona he adopted, I don't know. Because that was the thing about Donald. As Hillary spent more time with him, she discovered that the boisterous face Donald presented to the world hid a much more vulnerable soul. He was an incredibly private person. He hid himself very much. So he would go from being the queen bee to which everybody flooded to um, being almost recluse and quiet. So this persona that he put on, he'd never tell the truth if a quip would, would do. He wrote dialogue rather than talk to you. But underneath it, was he was sensitive and rather shy. Very shy. An easy way of dividing pe- is eggs and peaches. Um, peaches is all squashy with the hardcore, and an egg is, has a hardcore but is squashy inside. Well, he was an egg. He had this exterior that was brittle, but there was a, a squashy human inside of it, a rather young, childish, squashy human inside of it. But, but, but the... The shell, the carapace, it was so good. It was so in place. It was so strong that you wouldn't have got there. Where, where do you think that compulsion for s- such privacy and secrecy came from? His childhood. Right from his childhood, from his very detached father and his very neurotic and over-possessive mother. So he didn't have much privacy at home? Oh, he had too much of anything. Um, I, I think he'd learnt to value it because his father was a very popular professor and he was a, more of a musician than a professor of um, electrical engineering. He loved his music. He had perfect pitch and he was a great cellist and he used to give lectures and things and the house was full of undergraduates who used to come round and I, I think Donald was sidelined rather. If Donald's raconteur persona was a show, a lot of people were buying tickets to it in the early 1960s. He'd bounce back from the critical drubbing of the demon barber to write one of his biggest ever theatrical successes, Madame Natouche, a farce directed by Professor Cronotus himself, Dennis Carey. And he'd found a new creative home, in radio. He used to work for the old third programme all the time. The third programme was a radio network started by the BBC in 1946. 
in response to the public's growing interest in the arts. The BBC's Director-General, Sir William Haley, declared that the network's purpose was to present the great classical repertoire in music and drama, and, so far as they are broadcastable, in literature and the other arts. Its remit was to broadcast work that was culturally satisfying and significant. But a lot of Donald's early work for the third program was significant mostly in a technological sense rather than a cultural one. From 1960 to 62, he wrote and acted in three different programs that were part of the BBC's first exploration of stereo. These pieces of experimental stereophony, as the BBC called them, were broadcast on Saturday mornings. The sound's left channel was broadcast on radio, while the right channel was broadcast through BBC TV. He did cocktail parties, basically, um, and he just wrote the conversation and he made played with the new technology. Not that he was technological, he played with the, te- uh, the technicians, did it. Um, and he wrote poems and co- bits of co- snippets of conversation as the a sound moved around the cocktail party, fading in, fading out. It was, it was great. Cotton's other most significant work for the third program was a trilogy of classical satires, Echo and Narcissus, The Salvation of Faust, and The Tragedy of Phaeton. I've tracked down a few of Donald's radio scripts. They're like his Doctor Who scripts on crack, bursting with puns and rhyming verse, perhaps too flip for their own good. But The Tragedy of Phaeton feels special. Speaking to the Radio Times about the trilogy in the week of Phaeton's broadcast, Cotton said, All three plays are concerned with the problems confronting the enthusiast who becomes a fanatic. In Phaeton, it is youth's rebellion against convention. When I read that description, it surprised me. It feels like a coy misrepresentation of what the tragedy of Phaeton's actually about. Phaeton's a comedy about rivalries between Greek gods that skewers everything from intergenerational conflict to the lofty airs of modern politicians. But it's also Donald Cotton's very own Trojan horse for a philosophical attack on modern religion. In the play, devoutly observant Phaeton, son of the great titan Helios, is offended when doting goddess Venus doubts his father's existence. To prove her wrong, Phaeton persuades his father to let him drive Helios' sun chariot across the heavens. Except once Phaeton gets up there, he discovers the earth is not flat, much less resting on the back of an elephant, and that the gods indeed do not exist. Phaeton! Venus, is that you? I told you I was divine, didn't I? Yes, darling. Ah, well I'm not. Neither are you. In fact, nobody is, but that doesn't matter now. Listen, I think you'll be interested in this. Oh, you listen to me. Phaeton? 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 Are you receiving me? Don't fight your father, please. You're frankly the feebler and enfant terribler. It's not yet an eminence, Grease. Your sort of behaviour does not suit a saviour. We can't your philosophy do. And cast no aspersions on authorised versions. Out and over to you. So you're against me too, are you? Of course I'm not, darling. I just want you to come back to me safely. Safely? What if I... Or anyone to fear in the whole wide universe, except the inability to comprehend it. Gods, Phaeton, fear the gods. Who am I to fear the gods? My dear girl, I am Phaeton, first of the free thinkers, and my destiny is to lead the mind of mankind outwards towards the stars.
That's not the original recording, by the way. That's my actor friends Ben and Petra back again to help me out. And huge claps to Petra for improvising the tune to Venus's song. We had no score to tell us how the hell the music might have gone. Anyway, back to the story. Far from Featon turning into a fanatic, it seems to me that Featon is a fanatic who finds redemption and freedom from fear in observable science. Of course, Cotton being Cotton, he can't let Featon have his moment completely. There's one last bleakly wry twist to the tale, as Helios decides to permanently silence his son by taking control of the chariot and crashing it. And as the narrator closes out the play, he imagines a destiny for Phaeton quite different from the rationalist one our hero might have hoped for. Let us suppose that Helios will have hesitated to destroy his too enthusiastic boy completely and content to swerve the chariot's re-entrant curve a few degrees has let him trace a sad parabola through space for all eternity. Suppose his orbit to be one of those which comets use. Does he return at lonely intervals to burn bright with cautionary fire? Above the birth of each messiah who claims to be the king of kings? That might explain a lot of things. That's quite an ending. And it feels pretty radical for what I imagine the BBC must have been like in the 1960s. Not that we should mistake Donald Cotton for a bleeding idealist. What he used to say was, because people said, why are you writing this? Why don't you write books and things? And he said, why the third program is playing two guineas a line for verse and one guinea a line for prose? What else do you think I'm going to write in? (laughs) 1964 brought big changes for Donald. He and Hillary were having a baby, so they decided to get married. He was known as the most engaging man around town because every time he wanted to go to bed with someone, he'd ask them to marry them. So it was a big joke, you know. But in fact, in my case, he actually asked me by father for permission. So we actually did get married. It was a simple affair, a registry office ceremony. We went into the local pub in Hastings and he just got the people from the public bar in and we bought them all a drink. Um... And he said, ladies and gentlemen, I feel like a person who's just won the pools. And like anybody who wins the pool says, it will not alter the way I live in one little bit. (laughs) It's a classic cotton quip, but in retrospect, it also foreshadowed troubles to come. In the 1960s, the concept of fathers being actively involved in parenting was still very novel. Nevertheless, I get the sense Donald Cotton had never considered the possibility of children in his life. And actually having a child did little to change that. I mean, when Perry was born, it was a, a, a little tiny cottage hospital and it was quite a new thing. So I said to him, Donald, they say you can be there if you want to be there. Do you want to be there? And he said, let's face it, my dear, do you want to be there? And I said, not really, no. He said, well, Earth makes you think I do. <laughs> a new baby brought new money pressures and the changing shape of radio was compounding Donald's troubles. The old third programme was busy morphing into Radio 3. So whereas it used to be a wonderful outlet for the written word and writing and music, it then wanted to change its its emphasis onto sport and music. And his work dried up. Cotton's writing during this period made his frustrations clear. He wrote a play called Cement, which is how children cemented a marriage right round your feet, you know. And suddenly he found that with responsibility, he needed a bit more money. Donald tried a few avenues for work. He even auditioned unsuccessfully to be a newsreader. But the job he did get was the one he'd end up most remembered for. Mm-hmm. 
the writer I did bring in to Doctor Who was Don Cotton. And I, I had known Donald for years and always said, you know, that someday I would get him to write for television. That's Donald Tosh, script editor of Doctor Who from 1965 to early 1966. Which brings us back to Donald Cotton's comment at that convention in 1986. How did Donald come to write for Doctor Who? I was engaged to the script editor's sister. That um, nepotism is not dead. Of course, he was lying in his teeth. He wasn't engaged to the doctor. He was very married and rather broke at the time. Donald Cotton was not dating Tosh's sister, but he was probably familiar with Tosh through theatre circles. Like Cotton, Donald Tosh had attended Guildhall School of Music and Drama, although almost certainly in different years. In a 1983 Doctor Who fan publication, Cotton recalled... I had been asked to play the lead in a tryout production of a one-act play in the Irvine Theatre, Leicester Square, closed these many years. And either from disinclination or because I was busy in other matters, I rejected the offer. I suggested Donald Tosh to the management as a replacement, he being an aspiring actor. He was auditioned, accepted and played the role with some success, after which I lost track of him for many years. Cotton claimed in that same article that Donald Tosh approached him out of the blue, which would have been a piece of luck given Cotton's money troubles at the time. But regardless of whether Tosh approached him or he approached Tosh, Donald Cotton was the man with the right skills and creative voice for the direction Tosh and producer John Wiles wanted to take Doctor Who. We wanted to change, not change Doctor Who, we wanted to do more with Doctor Who. We wanted to tell different kinds of stories. We suddenly thought, fine, we can go right back in time, not just to the Stone Age. We go back to the myths. We go back. And so I got Donald to write the end of the Siege of Troy. The Mythmakers sees the TARDIS crew pulled into the middle of the Trojan War. The Doctor's captured by the Greeks, while Vicky and the TARDIS end up prisoners in Troy. In order to get them back, the Doctor, posing as Zeus, has to invent the Trojan horse despite being convinced the Trojan horse couldn't really have existed. It is well known that when you come amongst us, you adopt to many different forms. Oh, do I? To to Europa, you appear as a bull. (laughs) To Leda, as a swan. To me, in the guise of an old beggar. I beg your pardon? I, Greek, can tell them in Hades that Paris sent you thither. I yield. Make a part. I yield. I'm your prisoner. But I say, this sort of thing is just not done. I mean, surely you'd rather die than be taken prisoner. I dreamed that out on the plain, the Greeks had left a gift. And although what it was remained unclear, we brought it into Troy. Then at night, from out its belly, soldiers came and fell upon us as we slept. Yes, well, I hardly think we need trouble to interpret that one. Cotton's story certainly achieved the production team's goal of doing something more with Doctor Who. When pitching the story for sales to overseas broadcasters, BBC Enterprises noted... Doctor Who has often been involved in comic situations before, but this is the first time he has really been interpreted as high comedy. Certainly, these are the most sophisticated scripts so far used in the series. But when Cotton first started writing the story, he was far from confident. We were living in Essex at that time, um, and Donald used to go up to London for days on end, and he came back saying, I've met with Donald Tosh, and I've got to work with television. I've never worked with television before. I don't think I can. And I had acted in television. I'd done a Shakespeare series and things. So I said, of course you can. Um, I'll I'll, I'll sort of give you some hints about the sort of script I'd been reading, which didn't help much because it was Shakespeare, but yeah. yeah. 
And so how did he find the experience of writing for television? Difficult. After writing for radio, he found the pressures of adapting to camera angles and having to do things um, to, to, to fit the camera, to fit the requirements of the discipline of television. He found it quite hard. It was out of his normal range. Perhaps that could lend credence to Donald Tosh's memory of the writing process. His first scripts, they came in, they were about that. Tosh here is holding his hands about a metre apart. It's a huge pile. For four episodes, do you know, I mean, hours it would have taken to do wonderful stuff. Four, I mean, it was tragic to kind of throw half of it away. But I mean, no way, it wasn't. I mean, it, was a, it made Ben-Hur look like a short. It would have run forever. <laughs> so um, we had to kind of take it down. I want to explain how it worked and everything else. And I worked very closely with Donald on that. Um, and it was huge fun to do. He was a very witty, um, warm man to work for. But we don't necessarily need to rely on Tosh's memories because Donald Cotton's son Perry has a remarkable artefact to show me. It's an old Jota notebook. Um... And uh, as it says in the front, on the front, Doctor Who and the Myth Makers by Donald Cotton. Um, and it's, it's very faded, very beat up, very old and very treasured. Yes, it's one of Cotton's original notebooks. Appropriately for Donald, its cover is a kind of red wine colour with stone tile pattern and a torn faded title sticker. It's one of those old style journals with sections for each letter of the alphabet. And starting on the first page of the B section, written by hand, is the first draft script of the Mythmakers. And that's not all. Further back, there's also a handwritten scene breakdown for Donald's subsequent Doctor Who story, The Gunfighters, or as he names it in this notebook, The Gunslingers. He's written one from the back and one from the front. So we can actually read Donald's first pass at the story and see what Tosh had to work with. Does it really make Ben-Hur look like a short? Well, no. There are some differences. For one, the Doctor's companion Stephen is here called Mike, Cotton was commissioned to write The Mythmakers during production of Episode 3 of The Chase. In fact, just one day before Peter Purvis shot his debut as lovable yokel Morton Dill, the producers were still developing the new companion, whom Purvis would eventually return to play in Episode 6. Another notable difference is that the Doctor is trying to return Mike to Earth, and he also has some strange views about Kalahari Bushmen living alongside dinosaurs, so apparently there were limits to Donald Cotton's knowledge of zoology. There are subtle hints, too, of Cotton's inexperience writing drama. He misses some opportunities to ratchet up the tension, which get inserted by the final version. Little things, like the Doctor trying a few gambits to escape back to the TARDIS before the cliffhanger in Episode 1. But overall, the biggest surprise is how close this first draft is to what appeared on screen. The plot track's mostly the same, and whole pages of dialogue would remain untouched. Take this passage. Some half-score Trojans will not whistle easy tonight, but what of you? Oh, what a trifle. I'm at Prince Hector. Here he lies. Zeus! Was instrumental. No doubt, no doubt. But what a year this is for plague. Even the strongest might fall. Prince Hector, huh, that he should come to this. You met him here, you say, as he lay dying. I met him, Odysseus, in single combat. Oh, yes, it's true. And raced him round the walls till down he fell exhausted. A famous victory. I met him face to face, I say. Cotton script has but one extra line from Odysseus at the start. And the only thing it misses is the Doctor's brief interjection. 
Otherwise, apart from a few changed synonyms, the scene that went before the cameras is all here in the very first pass. Word for word the same, sparkling with cheeky delight. So I think we can say Donald Tosh's story is a case of, well, let's be generous and say misremembering. But Cotton's uncanny accuracy also makes me wonder how much scribbling and note-taking he might have done before starting a draft. So did he spend a lot of time sort of wandering around thinking about what he was going to write before putting pen to paper no. or he just it just came no. out? He used to try it, well, in my day, he used to try it on the dog. I was a dog. So, and we live next door to um, somebody called Sebastian Dalrymple, who was the son of Ian Dalrymple, who was the director of Admiral Crichton and all that lot. So he was next door. Slightly down the way was um, Peter Ducrow, Peter Bailey, um, an actor who first was cast as the voice in Adam Adamant, which followed Dr. Who. And we and down the lane was a couple of friends, and they're all lushes. They drank. They drank for the end of the world. Um, and they used to come round, and we'd have what they'd call a cotton fest, and he'd read out what he'd written, and we'd, we'd giggle or not, and he'd go away sometimes and think about it. We usually didn't change a word. So there you go. Some people just have sickening talent, I guess. The Mythmakers proved to be a difficult shoot. Maureen O'Brien, who played the Doctor's long-standing companion Vicky, found out when she received her script that the story wrote her out of the series. That wasn't Cotton's decision. It was a last-minute directive from producer John Wiles. But Cotton found an elegant solution to make it happen. He'd already had Trojan King Priam named Vicky Cressida, because Priam found her actual name strange. So Cotton then simply had Cressida fall in love with Troilus and let the great romance, told by writers since the time of Chaucer and Shakespeare, play out. I doubt the poetry of Cotton's plot turn was much consolation for Maureen O'Brien, though. Star William Hartnell was also in a bad mood. The Mythmakers was a perfect vehicle for his comedy skills, something Hartnell was frustrated he hadn't had enough chance to show throughout his career. But the story also became a perfect storm for the lead actor's insecurities. He already didn't get along with producer Wiles, and the loss of Maureen O'Brien made him feel more vulnerable. He also felt the story sidelined him in favour of its famous guest performers, Max Adrian and Francis DeWolf. And added to this turmoil, Hartnell's beloved Aunt Bessie died during the shoot, and the production schedule didn't allow time for Hartnell even to attend the funeral. So you can understand how the atmosphere on set was a tad tense. But for Cotton, after getting over his initial doubts, it seems to have been a much happier project. I think he did it damn well. I mean, he wouldn't compromise, but uh, he did it. And I think he quite enjoyed it in the end. Cotton even managed to influence the hiring of other creative talent for the story. Max Adrian was there as King Priam, much to Hartnell's chagrin, because of Cotton. He and Adrian had been close friends and frequent collaborators for years. And Humphrey Searle, the Mythmaker's music composer, was another Cotton call. More than that, though, Donald was essentially able to create a Donald Cotton version of Doctor Who. A story that kept its writer's distinctive voice in a way that perhaps didn't occur again until Douglas Adams arrived on the show. For Doctor Who commentator Toby Haydock, a lot of that Cotton magic comes down to his characters, and an approach Toby thinks puts Cotton's work alongside legendary TV comedy The Simpsons. With The Simpsons you can get an episode set around anybody, and you know you will have a good time, because the characters are that well drawn, even if in sometimes very broad strokes. Um, you know that they can sustain a scene or an episode. And I know any one of these characters in The Mythmakers who are 
deluded, boorish. We haven't even mentioned Odysseus, who is glorious. And uh, uh, Paris, you know, who in in a boring drama would be the really dull hero. And in this is, is Bertie Wooster, you know, um, a sort of upper class twit who keeps trying to make a favourable impression. And, you know, he's an upper class twit, which is, again, a sort of a character that you can sort of despise were it not for the fact that it all comes from him trying to please his dad and not get the wrath of his vixen of a sister. I, I should have listened to my friend. Why, what do they say? Why, that they would rather face Prince Hector and Troilus together than the mighty Paris. That you are unconquerable. Really? <laughs> they don't say that in Troy. Oh, I could tell them a tale or two of your valour that, that would make even King Priam blanch to hear. I say, could you really? Yes, and will. Why, I hope my lord Achilles does not meet you. Even now he searches the plain for you, and what indeed would happen to our cause if he were vanquished? Ah, ha, ha, yeah. Well, I don't really see how I can oblige him if I have a prisoner. I mean, there will come a day of reckoning, of course, but, uh... Well, for the moment, pick up your sword. Now, I suppose I shall uh, have to drive you like a Grecian cur into the city, won't I? Uh, excuse me a moment. Farewell, Achilles! For today, Paris of Troy has other business. And so they're all, even though they're ludicrous, even though they're selfish, even though they're deluded, they're all really likeable. And comedy so often, it's so much easier to, you know, laugh at somebody's faults rather than love them because of their faults. And so it's a, it's a, it's a harder job. He doesn't laugh at his characters so much as that he, he, he encourages you to, to enjoy their company. Three weeks after The Mythmakers completed his TV broadcast, Donald Tosh commissioned Cotton to write another Doctor Who story, The Gunfighters. Unfortunately, this was a far less happy production for Cotton. Little more than a month after John Wiles and Donald Tosh commissioned him to write the story, they left Doctor Who. Their replacements, producer Innes Lloyd and script editor Jerry Davis, had very different ideas for the direction of the show. And that spelled trouble for The Gunfighters. Donald Tosh explains... Unfortunately, uh, my lovely successor, Jerry Davis, hated it. And, uh, it. But it had been paid for because Donald needed the money. <laughs> uh, and so he knew there was going to be an awful lot of work to do on it, which there was, you know. But it totally changed. Cotton was upset by the behind-the-scenes changes, and yet he still managed to turn in a script that remains unmistakably a Donald Cotton joint. The Doctor and his companions, Stephen and Dodo, arrive in a Wild West town, seeking a dentist to attend to the Doctor's toothache. Unfortunately, the town is Tombstone, and the dentist is Doc Holliday, who soon sets up our Doctor as the target for the Clanton gang, who've arrived in town seeking revenge against Holliday. Doc, I would like you to meet the... The Clanton brothers. The Clanton brothers. Oh, dear. I mean, uh, how do you do? Hmm? Recognise the name, Doc? Oh, yes, I do indeed, yes. Uh, Stephen, uh... Don't you think it's time we were going? Mm? And not just yet, Doc. We haven't had our little talk about Brother Reuben, uh, the late Brother Reuben. Oh, yes, I know. Yes, sometimes after a bereavement, it's very difficult to find exactly the right kind of words. Cotton script is whip-smart while steadfastly refusing to take itself seriously. He embraces both farcical comedy... Well, you ain't leaving, Doc. Live, that is. ...and structural experimentation. Like the mythmakers before it, the Gunfighters serves up double takes and punning titles for three episodes before unexpectedly veering into wholesale slaughter at the story's climax. 
I thought you'd do better than that, Mr. Ringo. I will. <laughs> Next time. Ringo was here. And? He ain't no more. It might not be to everyone's style, but it's certainly not a case of a rider playing it safe. The Gunfighters also looks great. Director Rex Tucker somehow squeezes real-life horses into the tiny BBC studios and serves up wonderful high and low angle shots to maximise the atmosphere of designer Barry Newbery's stunning tombstone sets. The story lacks the cavalcade of lovable characters we found in The Mythmakers, but the TARDIS team of William Hartnell, Peter Purvis and Jackie Lane are all in outstanding comedic form. And what about our little wizard of the keys? Oh. Miss DuPont, can you play? Oh. There will be no necessity to have a bash. And there's a charmingly roguish guest performance by Anthony Jacobs' Doc Holliday. Ready, Doc? Oh, ready as I will be. Why these here get-togethers have to be held as soon as I never will know if ain't civilised. Despite these strengths, though, the gunfighters bombed with the viewers. Episode 4 scored the lowest audience appreciation figures ever recorded by Doctor Who, with only 30% of surveyed viewers considering it worthwhile viewing. Maybe, like for many fans today, there just wasn't an appetite for Doctor Who doing comedy. Maybe viewers were put off by the deadly shift in tone in that bloody climax. Maybe the audience was rejecting the dodgy acting and horrible American accents served up by the performers lower down the cast list. Or maybe they were sick of the song. Ah yes, the song. So fill up your glasses and join in the song The law's right behind you and it won't take long So come you coyotes and howl at the moon Till there's blood upon the sawdust in the last chance saloon For anyone who's never watched The Gunfighters, The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon plays repeatedly throughout all four episodes. It becomes a kind of Greek chorus narrating the action. So the herbs and the clantons are aiming to meet at the OK Corral near Calamity Street. Cotton wrote an initial verse or two, but it was actually Rex Tucker who decided it should be expanded to comment on the whole story. Tucker wrote extra lyrics with composer Tristram Carey to cover the rest of the action, and many a Doctor Who fan in the decades since have cursed Donald Cotton for it. Hear a story the like of the OK Corral. To be fair though, when The Gunfighters was watched the way the producers intended, 22 minutes per week rather than being binged on DVD or Twitch, the song probably didn't feel quite so repetitious. It's also another genuine innovation of the story. Not only the first song commissioned for the series, but a song actually commenting on the story taking place. And even if you don't like it, there's at least one person it made happy. Because by 1966, money was again a problem for Donald. We were either wealthy or broke, depending if he'd been paid for a piece of writing. I mean, if he earned anything, he drank it. That heavy drinking, hard living sort of is the area he functioned in. Poor old Perry learned how to go under the table when the bailiffs called. Needing support, the family moved to Wales to live with Donald's parents for a while. An experience made even more fraught by the fact... They didn't know I existed, let alone Perry. In fact, when we lived in Hastings, she came to visit and 
I had to clear out. We were properly married then, but I had to clear out of the house because he was frightened of telling his mother he was married. She was so possessive. And she found a hairpin and created mayhem because it proved he'd had a girl in there. So eventually we, it, we, we hit hard times and he let his parents know. And he said, and by the way, I've got a wife and child. And by that time they were living in Wales. So we were dragged up with Perry um, as a you know, baby in arms and uh, went to stay with these, these two very odd people. So, yeah, things were tense. Anyway, one day, Donald and Hillary needed to get out of the house, so they took Perry for a walk. We passed the school and they were singing that bloody song. There's gamblers from And he was very cheered up by that and taken with it. So next time you watch The Gunfighters and The Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon makes you want to throw your TV out the window, just remember that one moment of hope it brought Donald Cotton on a Welsh spring afternoon many years ago. Did you have any discussions about whether he should uh, pop back and say, do you know I wrote that? No, I don't think we did. He he wasn't into that sort of glorification apart from his private... Cotton fests. In fact, the truth was, Donald wasn't that proud of his TV work. Did the two of you sit down to watch his Doctor Who stories when they were broadcast? No. No. We listened to his tapes, but we never sat down and watched the Doctor Who's, no. I don't know why. There's no reason not to. He was not proud of them. Why was that? To start with, he resented working for television. What was it about television that he didn't like? Oh, it was one of the newer fellows. <laughs> I don't know. It's not logical. Don't ask for logic. <laughs> well, it does seem a, re- a recurring thing with him that he is a slightly um, a man out of time. Oh, very much. Yes. yes. Born, born after his time. Yeah. Donald would take that very quality of being a man out of time, his yearning for the civilization of eras past, and put it at the heart of his next project. Bold as a knight in white armour. The BBC launched Adam Adamant Lives in 1966 in an attempt to cash in on the success of ITV's The Avengers. Upright Edwardian adventurer Adam Adamant defends king and country at the dawn of the 20th century. Louise, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever met. You're the only one to whom I have ever given my heart. But alas, dear Louise, I'm afraid I just cannot ask you to be mine. You see, my love for you could be used as a weapon to destroy me by the enemies of England. My life is fraught with danger each day and night. Alas, Louise, my resolve is as blue steel. Betrayed by a duplicitous lover in the opening minutes, he finds himself trapped by masked evil mastermind, The Face. Ah, at last. Yes. yes, at last. I always suspected there was one man behind everything. At last I've come face to face with you. A privilege granted to no other man and granted to you too late. Now I have you and I intend to keep you. I'm not an easy man to cage. A cage would be too good for you. Then kill me. That would be too good for you also. The face freezes Adamant in suspended animation, 
till 60 years later when he's found buried underneath a construction site. Defrosted, Adam teams with a mod assistant, Miss Jones, to become an unlikely 60s crime fighter. Adam Adamant Lives only survived for two seasons. There's a lot less documented about it compared to a phenomenon like Doctor Who, and its origins are a bit murky. Most sources record it as created by Donald Cotton and his purported writing partner, Richard Harris. No, not that one. Some stories say it was the brainchild of its producers Verity Lambert and Sidney Newman, who of course were also the driving forces behind the birth of Doctor Who. One story even goes that Newman was staring out his office window at building works when he imagined the workers unearthing a long-lost hero. But Hillary has different memories. He and Donald Tosh got together and they started working on the thing which eventually became Adam Adamant. I've never seen Donald Tosh's name associated with the series before, but it's possible. He continued to work for the BBC on and off for the next few years after he left Doctor Who. Maybe Tosh was a go-between asked by Verity Lambert to approach Cotton. Certainly, one can imagine Verity might have tuned in out of curiosity to see The Mythmakers, which was the first Doctor Who story produced after her departure. Perhaps she saw these classical frivolities and realised the possibilities its writer could bring to a project like Adam Adamant. On the other hand, it feels completely plausible that the idea could have been born wholly from Donald Cotton. I mean, if you haven't already got the picture that Donald didn't really fit in modern society, try this story on for size. He never learned to drive a car. Um, But one day, my mother was in her car with him at the wheel driving around Marble Arch in London. He was um, in the car and having a driving lesson and he was terribly scared. And the bus came coming down to him, doing the normal thing, crossing. And uh, he just took his hands off the wheel, put them over his eyes. And he just went... And she had to wrestle the wheel from him um, and have to, have to go off and find a bar somewhere to, to calm him down. So yeah, it's not a stretch to see how Adam Adamant kind of is Donald Cotton. He started, he, had, he worked with Donald and they came up with the idea that he would have this, this frozen person come back and right the wrongs of today. Basically, it was Donald's old-fashioned standards and everyone should read The Telegraph and, you know, we wake today in that image. And he called him Damon Kane because it sounded like Demon King. And he started writing and it took him ages. He couldn't quite get on with it terribly well. So the Beeb resorted to desperate measures to get their script. They just put him into an hotel in Piccadilly and wouldn't let him come out until they'd given them the script. <laughs> they shut him away. This drastic plan got results, but unfortunately not what the producers were hoping for. He wrote a couple of sample scripts, and I don't know what happened to them at all. They were very good. They were lovely. They were, they were particularly his sense of humour and his wit. But, of course, the powers that be didn't like them. They wanted to make it more of a straightforward adventure. Um, and the, his tongue-in-the-cheek approach um, to, to, the, to, to the freezing of the guy, and the, he made more of the contrast between the life he'd left and the life he came into. Than, than, than they went with with the stories and they dropped him and that's hard he, he took that quite hard and this is where Richard Harris no not that one comes into the creator credits I think 
Harris responded to me via his agent to say his involvement in Adam Adamant Lives was very minor and that he hardly worked with Donald Cotton. It's likely Harris did a rewrite of Cotton's script, and this became the foundation for the original pilot of Adam Adamant Lives. But the BBC didn't like this version either. The pilot was shot, but never aired, and it's now lost. Only the first nine minutes of the Cotton and Harris draft, basically the material you heard earlier, was kept. It became the opening of a new first episode written by Tony Williamson. The end result is an episode and series that's kind of dull. And as time proved, it was also pretty forgettable. And I can't help wondering, what if the BBC had backed Cotton? What if he'd been able to create a series infused with his trademark wit? Something cheekier and more idiosyncratic than the Beige Avengers knockoff the BBC preferred. Might Adam Adamant Lives have lived on more in our memories today? This man is the one. Donald's bad experience on Adam Adamant was his second professional blow in a row. The tensions of this, combined with his money troubles and Cotton's general discomfort with his role as a father, had also taken a toll on Donald and Hillary's relationship. The marriage was going a little bit pear-shaped, rather a lot pear-shaped. He wasn't terribly good at babies and things and that. And I went back to live with my parents and uh, he was floating on people's sofas. Donald had one last shot at writing for Doctor Who. He submitted to script editor Jerry Davis a proposal for a new story, a surprising departure from his past historical work. It was called The Herdsman of Venus, and it was about Venusians arriving in flying saucers and their cattle were the Loch Ness monsters. And um, nobody seemed to like that very much. I don't know why. <laughs> so anyway, we smiled and went on to do something else. <laughs> the Herdsman of Venus, or The Herdsman of Aquarius, as it was recorded on BBC documentation, was rejected by the production team in June 1966. It marked the end of Donald Cotton's career in television. His marriage also ended around this time, and Donald ran off to Spain. But it was not the end of Donald's connection with Doctor Who, because when he bounced back, Donald's next major project would see him teaming up with the one and only John Pertwee. Next episode on Mythmaker, the lost legacy of Donald Cotton. We used to go to the pub during the show sometimes. I assume you are Tamsin with the coloured moon clouds. Oh, yes. Perry's emailed me the report of the coroner's inquest. Unfortunately, the way he left us wasn't so good. Mythmaker, The Lost Legacy of Donald Cotton, is made by me, Lucas Testro. Thank you to this episode's guests, Perry Jones and Hilary Wright. Performing an excerpt from Donald Cotton's The Tragedy of Phaeton were Petra Elliott, Benjamin McKenzie and Noah Moon. Readings were by Tim Dickinson. You can find a full video of Donald Cotton's Doctor Who Appreciation Society appearance as a bonus feature on video 79 of the Mythmakers series, available at timetraveltv.com. The Donald Tosh audio also comes from Mythmakers 44, available at the same site. 